everyone, and welcome to another episode of Let's Talk with Smitty. We've got a very special guest today, a longtime dear friend, Mary Najimi, who is the immediate past president of the MTA, the Mass Teachers Association. Welcome aboard, Mary. Thank you, Smitty. It's great to be with you. Tell us a little bit about yourself before we get into the hard, hardball questions. So I grew up in Berkshire County, Pittsfield, Massachusetts, in a large Arab American community in a unionized household and in a family of educators. I actually became an educator because of my experience as a little kid. I always felt otherized and marginalized because I grew up on a Dick and Jane reader. And Dick and Jane didn't reflect my culture, my identity. In fact, it was the epitome of white culture. And I just felt invisible. So I thought there had to be a different way to reach kids, kids who weren't part of the mainstream culture, and teach all kids about each other's culture. And that's why I got into education. And how long were you a teacher actually in the classroom? I was in the classroom for 28 years oh, before I won presidency. Yeah, uh, well, <laughs> I it, got a lot of blessings. <laughs> <laughs> well, as you know, I come from a family of school teachers and I, it's, you know, education is very, very important to me. But you mentioned about the unions. With everything going on, not only in the Commonwealth, but across the country, why are unions more important today than ever before? Unions have had the same level of importance from the time that they began. Unions matter. They matter then and they matter now because it's the vehicle that brings working people together to create healthy and safe working conditions and bring economic security to their members. And when unions fight to keep, for example, a physical plant safe, be it stop and shop or a school building or a college campus or Macy's, then everyone benefits. Everybody who walks into that building stays safe. And when workers get paid a livable wage, then they bring economic stability to their communities. The MTA has done all of that, fought for all of those things. And look at today, Starbucks workers, Amazon workers, they're all working to create safe, fair working environments and stop the exploitation of their labor. I remember my sister, she retired uh, after 37 years. Uh, uh, she never got out of first grade. I always joke with her that she took 37 years to get out of first grade. But the thing that I admire about teachers so much, and especially with my sister Lisa, is her very first first grade class as a class invited her to their high school graduation. Mm -hmm. I had a pause to think who my first grade teacher was, but to have that impact, it really hit me hard that the impact that a teacher can have on young people at five, six, seven years of age is really an amazing tool. But did you ever think we would be talking about Evaldi and security? And, you know, I, we've heard stories from our parents before about, you know, the, the bomb attacks, the nuclear attacks uh, during World War II, hiding under your desk. Think about hiding under your desk under a nuclear attack. Right, right. doesn't make any sense. Right. But education is very different today, and I think that's the role of the unions as well and how important it is to make sure that our children are safe right. for those six or seven hours a day. That's right. We have to, we have to take care of the whole child especially as wealth inequality is growing in the United States. Uh, our children are experiencing trauma of poverty, housing, food, uh, family income insecurity, trauma of racism. <clears throat> and as the social safety net in society is breaking down, our kids are bringing more needs, trauma, anxiety into the school buildings 
and educators. I talk about educators, not just teachers, because educators also include paraeducators, counselors, nurses, bus drivers. We all have to educate much more, take care of much more holistic needs of children than we did 20, 30 years ago. So let's, let, I want to touch on that because one thing that I've been very passionate about is social emotional. Yes. I, I don't think we spend enough time talking about that in the schools or what the impact is. I was blessed in a family where, you know, mom or dad actually did read books to us at home. We can't assume mom or dad are even together. Maybe maybe mom's working a double shift someplace. These latchkey kids. But the social emotional, never mind the trauma that they're going through with these gun shootings and school shootings, but what is going on with children today with the social emotional? How we need how do we need to be addressing that um, more so today than ever before? Yeah. One of the things that I am really proud of that we have done as the MTA is help the general public actually understand how MCAS has done more harm than good. MCAS has actually pushed out what we used to be able to do to address the social emotional needs of children. Smitty, I started teaching before MCAS. I, my first job was 1990 in Pittsfield teaching first grade. When I left the classroom in 2018 to become the president, I was teaching kindergarten. Because of MCAS, it pushed all of the content down a grade level. So my 1990 first grade curriculum became my 2018 kindergarten curriculum. That's a crime. So that in and of itself has risen the level of anxiety of all of our students. We're stressing them out. We are told, I taught in Concord. From Concord to Springfield, I hear educators say the same thing. We're being told to teach the curriculum with fidelity, lesson by lesson, page by page. Stay on pace with your colleagues. Why? Because we all have to pass the MCAS, and if we don't, there's high stakes. So we've pushed out social-emotional learning, and the pandemic has exposed how much more important it is now to get back to it. So with teachers, we're actually teaching to the test. Mm -hmm. And for the students, are we teaching them anything or are we just teaching them to memorize? We are not teaching students. We're teaching lessons, okay. right? When you have to teach page by page, you're teaching the content in the book. We are not giving them time to absorb, to think mm -hmm. critically, to, to observe deeply and to reflect. Those are the most important elements of learning. That's how you absorb content. But we're just teaching content. Mary, uh, we're here with uh, Mary Najimy. She's the uh, past president of the MTA, the Mass Teachers Association. You're, you're term limited. Four years is, is all you can do. And I think personally, uh, you've done a, really a fantastic job and you've raised the bar of what the MTA stands for, in, in my opinion. You okay. are a a known entity uh, in in state government. Um, good, bad, or indifferent, people know who you are. I think that's really important. Um, and you force the elected officials to engage in dialogue, a different right. dialogue that I think is so very important. You spent so much time in the classroom impacting young kids' lives. Yeah. What made you want to run for office? What Was there something going on? And Concord's a good, a good district. Concord is a good but district. But you've also experienced the, you know, the inner city districts, which are very different, and the rural districts, which are very different. But what possessed you to want to run for office, and why did you think being president of the NPA could maybe have some systemic change? Yeah, I learned, and this is something I tell all aspiring educators and new educators. I even tell this to educators who are veteran. If you want to be the educator you intended to be 
when you came into this profession, then you must be a strong unionist. Because what has happened over time in general, from uh, elected governors to uh, and presidents to appointed secretaries of education and commissioners and boards, they have taken the authority and the autonomy away from educators to make decisions in their classroom. And the groups of people who know best what students need are educators, students themselves, and their families and caretakers. We've been stripped of our autonomy, our dignity, and our authority. And the only way to get that back is by being a strong union. I think, um, you know, I, I, I look at people running for office today very differently. I'd like to look at their lived experience. Clearly, you've had lived experience mm-hmm. in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Was there anything that surprised you when you got on the other side of the table as a president of a big union? There wasn't anything that surprised me. I was just, uh, I just understood more deeply the level of the systemic change that we had to fight for. And that's what we've been fighting. We have to change systems, not only policies, but systems. We have to change policy, policy culture, and systems. So so to, to go back to MCAS for a second, I mean, changing that policy would be to eliminate the mandate. Do we eliminate MCAS entirely, or is it a way to measure how a school district is doing, but not being a sole graduation requirement for the kids? So there's multiple layers to that question. First and foremost, what we know standardized tests measure mostly are the impacts outside of school, like uh, income, uh, housing, food, insecurity, uh, education attainment level of families. Um, And we also know that standardized testing was rooted in the white supremacist eugenics movement. It's a relic of that. It always creates a a racial hierarchy where white uh, middle class and affluent students score at the top and black and Latinx students score at the bottom. What we're stuck with at the moment, though, is a federal mandate that tells us what we have to test, how often we have to test, and in what grade levels. What we can change in Massachusetts, Massachusetts is is only one of 11 states that still have MCAS as a graduation requirement. That's not federal policy. Uh, So the MTA has been advocating for getting rid of it as a high stakes graduation requirement. It's possible. We did it during the pandemic. And Smitty, you were part of that movement. Joe Comerford just led a movement recently where she got a whole bunch of legislators to sign on to a, a letter of, of opposition to the Department of Education's latest idea that they should raise the graduation score level. If we get rid of the high school graduation rate, we still have the data that we can use to compare. But it's only a, it's, it's one data point that has ter- become the measure of the entire success of a school. So where's the disconnect? I mean, there's 200 elected legislators um, from very different parts of the Commonwealth. I mean, you, we think Massachusetts is not that big of a state, but until you start traveling and you see different people, where's the disconnect to understand just what you've explained mm-hmm. to say, this shouldn't be the tool mm-hmm. to put that pressure on a young person? Why don't we have that 
ability to legislatively or administratively to say, we're no, no longer going to have this graduation requirement. That is not a federal law. It's a state requirement. When are we going to loosen that up? Is it the administration? Is it the legislature? Who is ultimately responsible? It's a little of both. I would say the disconnect is becoming less and less in the legislature because you all actually uh, signed legislation to cancel the graduation requirement during the first year of COVID. Uh, the real obstacles are the few legislators who are ideologically bound to it, the governor, the secretary of education, and the commissioner who are ideologically bound to it. That's why under a new governor, we need a complete change of cabinet. It's time for the commissioner to step aside because he has done more harm than good. Um, the other piece that I hear often, that's a solution, there, there's a solution to it. There's a real desire on some legislators' parts to understand how education can work successfully without it. That just takes dialogue and bringing them around to see successful examples of how we measure the, the progress and, and how do we start measuring the quality of school, not just student progress. It's interesting that the conversation, which has made it difficult the last couple of years with COVID as well, even for legislatively. I mean, we're still kind of in a hybrid option uh, version for us as well. So we're not having that personal interaction like mm -hmm. we would have normally. Mm -hmm. Selfishly, I would have loved to have seen you in a presidency kind of overlapping in an administration. And certainly your presidency and your leadership without COVID uh, it would have been a different conversation mm -hmm. going forward. But, you know, what do you expect from a new administration? I mean, clearly the, the current governor has chosen not to run for re-election, so we're going to have a whole new administration, like you said, new commissioner of education, new secretary of education. What are your expectations from your past four years in your life experience as an educator for or hopes for a new governor? Right. What is the most important thing for a new governor now to understand is we have policy and policy culture, both of which are punitive. Uh, the policies have turned into a system of forced compliance. Back to what I said about teaching lesson by lesson, page by page, that's forced compliance. Comply with MCAS or you get punished. That's forced compliance. Policy culture is also punitive. Now, there isn't, we know, <clears throat> we can reasonably predict which students in which communities are going to score poorly on MCAS before they even take it. And there isn't a person who would disagree that those students need and those schools need some kind of intervention. Intervention currently with this current policy and policy culture is punitive. It's receivership, it's turnaround plans. It could be restorative. So intervention could be more money to schools. Intervention will be watching the fruit come to bear of the Student Opportunity Act. Remember, that was the legislation that you helped pass, bringing $1.5 billion on an annual basis to, to schools who need it the most. It could be bringing in community school models. A community school model is a model that brings in mental health, physical health students, has a culturally relevant curriculum, so policy doesn't have to be punitive, nor does culture. And we need the governor to shift the policy culture with her expectations. We need new appointments. The Board of Education under the statute is not allowed to have educators on it. It's the most insane thing I've ever heard. 
We need a secretary of education who is an experienced educator. So there needs to be a complete pivot away from the 25 years of the failed accountability structures and back on the path of teaching towards the whole child, uh, changing our curriculum so it's culturally responsive, as well as our, our instructional practices and assessment. So, so you mentioned the Student Opportunity Act. I mean, this November we'll be talking about the Fair Share Amendment, right. which if it passes will you know, uh, provide maybe a couple billion dollars more. Um, I, I've been saying very openly and publicly that we need to make sure that this is for education and transportation. Is it in addition to or in lieu of? I mean, we need to make sure it's in addition to. But with all this money coming into the Commonwealth and going back to their respective school districts, should, should the state have a bigger say of how these local districts spend that money? Um, I personally am a big advocate of the intention be to reduce class sizes. I would love to see paraprofessionals in every classroom. I would love to see a librarian in every school. I would love to see a nurse in every school building, every minor school district. But how can we mandate some of that? And how do we get the local municipalities, the local school district to say, yeah, we've got all this extra money, but we just need to be doling out raises. We should be hiring more teachers and getting more paraprofessionals. How can we kind of legislate more of that? Yeah, you articulated the goals of the MTA. All of those things that you just said, more counselors, more nurses, uh, lower class sizes. We actually call those things common good issues, right? Mm -hmm. and, and the MTA has truly become, under my leadership, a union that has built the rank and file to bargain for these common good issues. It has to be, and, and the MTA, even uh, beyond my tenure, is going to fight hard to win the student, uh, the fair share amendment and fight hard at the bargaining table to implement, have the money spent on exactly those things. I'm not sure you can legislate those things, but where the governor and the legislators are important is to be the voice with the union that says in their local communities that they represent, we passed this, we won this, we expect that you will spend the money not on top-heavy bureaucratic structures, but on things that directly benefit our students. Mm. Let me, I want to ask you, what do you think about school choice? I, I, I get calls all the time about school choice. that It's the same flat dollar amount since 1993 when it was implemented. But um, every time I bring that up at the state house, from multiple uh, uh, chairs of education on the House and the Senate, somebody it's a choice. If you don't benefit from it, choose not to do it. But yet we have, you know, a school committee member back, back in my district said it's white flight, bright flight. The brightest, wealthiest, whitest families who can afford to have their kids go to a, a smaller school size um, are benefiting from that. So how do we, what can we do with school choice? Is making it more money the answer or is eliminating it the answer? Yeah, school choice benefits few and hurts the majority, mm -hmm. as you just said. When our public schools are fully funded so that resources are equitable across municipalities so that every single class size is in kindergarten in Concord generally my class size was 16 to 18. If there was enough resources in every school that that was the class size norm with a full-time paraeducator who's paid a living wage uh, with a librarian in every building with school nurses the more that we can invest in the under-resourced 
schools, the more we can level the playing field, and then we won't need school choice. What do you think about longer school days, longer school years? It depends on what, Mm. for what purpose. If we have a longer school day that is designed to enrich students' learning experiences, it's very different than a longer school day that's targeting places like New Bedford with low test scores just to get test scores up. Mm. If there's a longer school day, it has to be, uh, uh, educators have to be compensated. Uh, so if, if it's a well thought out, bought in by the community that serves a different purpose than more of the same, it could have some benefits. Uh, the other thing, Smitty, that's incredibly important that the MTA has been doing, uh, that is a common good issue, we have 63 education support professional units. Those are paraeducators, bus drivers, custodial staff, cafeteria workers that are fighting for a livable wage. Right now, our paraeducators in general make about twenty dollars to $25,000 a year. They're living in poverty and working two and three jobs. And they are taking care of the state's most precious resource, our students. Mm. That's, that's a crime, and that has to change. And winning the Fair Share Act could, could go a long way in providing revenues to increase the base salary of our paraeducators. We have a few minutes left, Mary, and we have to save time for our rapid-fire questions, okay. which you know, we're going to try to catch you off guard a little bit. We'll trip, trip <laughs> you up a little bit. But one thing, I, you know, we, we all want instant results. And when it comes to children, it's kind of like the environment. The best time to plant a tree is 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. The second best time is today. Mm-hmm. I think the same is with education. We want instant results in government, but I, my dad always told me it's a marathon, not a sprint. Right. You have to be patient. It's going to take time. But we're losing an entire generation of young people by just politicking or you know just procrastinating or whatever. The four years that you've had, which is a blur, and I'm sure it went, went by like a snap of a finger, what is the highlight of those past four years? For me, I think the highlight is we truly became much more of a rank-and-file union. We changed society's understanding of the harm that MCAS has done. The debt crisis, talking about we're losing a generation of kids. We're losing a generation of kids once they become seniors. They fall off the cliff because of college debt. Uh, we have a lot more that we have to do to fully fund public higher education. Um, winning the Student Opportunity Act was one of the uh, the biggest victories. And I think just in general, uh, the living wage campaign for our education support professionals, you know, on my way out the door, the feedback uh, that I got from my members that I think was most meaningful was they said to me, Mary, you made me feel visible, valued, and a, a, you gave me a sense of belonging in the MTA. And those very members have become the fighting unionists who are winning better education and working conditions for their students in their buildings and better working conditions for themselves. Um, we're going to hear a lot more from Mary and Jimmy. I, I, we don't have enough time to get into what's the next chapter of your life, but um, we're going to hear a lot of great things from this young lady. And we're going to get you back on this podcast in, in the next few months when you, when you figure that what that, that's going to be. But are you ready for some rapid-fire questions? I'm not sure, but I'll try. <laughs> <laughs> okay. There's no right or wrong answer to these things, but what is your cooking specialty? Oh, Arabic food. Oh, okay. Um, do you have a hobby that you could turn into a full-time job? 
I could become a, a garden landscaper. Wow. Okay. The glass half full or half empty? Half full. No, half empty. Half empty. Half empty? Half empty. See, I'm always half full, but it's leaking sometimes. <laughs> you know? Ice cream or sorbet? Oh, ice cream. Your favorite state rep? Smitty Pigment. <laughs> <laughs> And, and I, I asked every one of my guests the same question, and it's probably the hardest one. And if, if you could give advice to your younger self, what would it be? Stay strong and self-confident. Stay true to who you are. That's the best answer I've gotten. Thanks. It's a hard one. Yeah, it Make, is Makes you think. Yeah. But uh, Mary and Jimmy... Past president, future, whatever you want to be, <laughs> uh, but past president of the MTA, Mass Teachers Association. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, and we'll get you back. You. you let me know when you're ready to come back. Happy to. All right. And thanks to our listeners. Uh, we'll be back next week with another great show. Uh, until then, be well, be safe, have fun, be happy. Let's all take care of one another. Let's all be Berkshire. Come along and give you faith.